That's the Messiah. He fulfills everything that God has been preparing to show us who the Messiah is. Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day, mothers. Uh, appreciate the opportunity that we have to recognize you and to honor you and to let you know that you're prayed for. Um, we, we appreciate very much all of the hard, hard work that you do. Uh, I talked with uh, Dave Heckman a little bit before the service this morning, and uh, his mom, uh, Barb Heckman, took a little tumble yesterday, and she banged the back of her head there a little bit. She's home resting today, uh, but if you would, just keep Barb in your prayers. I know she would appreciate that, and hopefully she will be able to recover quickly. So as we begin, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to think about Jesus Christ and that he is superior to Melchizedek. Now, I'm curious, how many of us are willing to admit that we don't know a whole lot about Melchizedek? Yeah, right. I'm, that's, that's, I'm not surprised at all. Let's think about and remind ourselves who the recipients of this first letter um, or of this letter are, the, the book to the Hebrews. It's written to Jewish believers, inquirers, and skeptics. The writer of this book, and we don't know who the human writer was. Many have thought it was Paul, but there were other, some, some other candidates put forward. But the bottom line is the Holy Spirit is the author of this particular book. And so it's being written to a group of Jewish people they were some of them believers and some of them were were thinking about it and some of them may have been skeptics but all of them would have been familiar with the concepts of messiah and high priest and king and all of those things even melchizedek from the old testament because that was their scripture that's what they grew up with that's what they kind of cut their teeth on, so to speak. So those things that sometimes seem very obscure to us would not have been obscure at all to the original recipients of this letter. And just because we are separated by time, and just because we are separated a little bit by our experience and our growing up, doesn't mean that we can't understand these things and find profit in them. So we're going to have a little bit of Old Testament background here this morning, particularly as it relates to the prophet, the high priest, and the king in the Old Testament. Now the prophet uh, never came from a specific tribe. There was no indication anywhere in the Old Testament that prophets had to come from the tribe of Issachar or Zebulun or any of those I mean, it just in fact Amos uh, if you read Amos this afternoon maybe uh, he says you know I'm not the prophet I'm not the son of a prophet I, I didn't grow up this way but God got a hold of me and there's a message he wants me to share now that's Rogers paraphrase you can read the real thing in the prophet Amos this afternoon but Amos is a perfect example God used men whom he chose as his prophet 
when God wanted to do it. And remember, we've talked about this before. The purpose of the prophet was to proclaim the word of God, to point out the sin of the people, and to call the people to repentance. Now, the, the future aspect of the prophet, that's kind of like, it just comes along for the ride because what the prophet does is he, he sets before the people the consequences of obedience would be blessing and the consequences of disobedience would be trouble. And sometimes he specified what that trouble would be and it would be in the future. And so we get the idea that the prophet is the guy who's only talking about future events. Not at all. The prophet in the Old Testament was focused very much on the here and now. He was proclaiming the word of God to the people of God, calling them to repentance, pointing out their sin, and reminding them of the consequences of their response, either obedience or disobedience. That was the prophet. The high priest. Now the high priest, there was a restriction uh, the tribe of Levi was chosen by God to be that tribe that would be particularly associated with the, the tabernacle and later on the temple. And so that whole tribe of Levi were sort of set apart. They were priests. They were those who were responsible for ministry in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. They were primarily responsible for the sacrifices that would happen and for the supply of wood and so forth to be used there on the altar. That was the responsibility of the tribe of Levi. Now, within that tribe, there was one family. God chose Aaron, who was Moses' older brother, chose Aaron to be the first high priest as God brought them out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai and, and gave the law and so forth, he designated that Aaron was to be the high priest. And the high priest was always to be a descendant, not just of Levi, of the whole tribe, but specifically within that tribe of the family of Aaron. So that was very specific. Not anybody could be high priest. You had to be a member of the house of Aaron, a part of the tribe of Levi. The king, the king was another specific group that was limited by God. Back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, we read this. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver, or, <coughs> excuse me, from, or from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him will be the obedience of all the people. That's kind of a sort of a cryptic statement there, but, but the, the ruler for Israel, the lawgiver for Israel, the one who would be in charge of, of the laws and enforcing those things and so forth, would be from the tribe of Judah. Now, the reference to Shiloh, uh, the, the one, uh, it's a messianic reference, the one who's going to bring peace, and it's going to stay with him. That scepter is not going to depart from between his feet. It's, he's he's going to be king, 
and he's going to be king from the tribe of Judah. Later on, we discover that not only from the tribe of Judah will this happen, but specifically from the house of David. You remember that Saul was chosen as, for, as the very first king. Uh, God indicated that choice, and he gave them that man, Saul, because the people had rebelled against God. They said, well, we don't, we, we don't, we're not interested in this invisible king business. We want a king like all the nations, somebody that's going to lead us out to war and fight our battles and do our job. So we want a king like all the nations. And God says, all right, I'm going to give you what you ask for. Here is a guy named Saul and he proved to be a disaster. That's what they wanted. That's what they got. God made the second choice, and he chose a young man named David from an obscure family, the family of Jesse, but he was from the tribe of Judah. He was from the house of Jesse, from the house or the place of Bethlehem. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to David, that you are not going to fail to have a man from your line on the throne before me forever. Mm. So, kind of like with Levi and the house of Aaron. Levi is all the priests. The high priest comes from Aaron. Judah is the royal tribe, but the king comes from from the house of David. So sometimes, you know, we get this idea that all the little Jewish girls all over uh, Israel were hoping to be the mother of the Messiah because the Messiah was to come from the line of David. Well, that's romance. That's not scripture. <laughs> Only those little girls who were related to King David had that hope. Only them. And if you remember in Luke chapter 3, how does Luke present Mary? That's Mary's lineage that's there. Uh, it, it says about, you know, Joseph being the son of, um, and now the name just completely went out of my mind, uh, but it was actually Mary's dad. Well, that wasn't unusual because when you married the daughter, sometimes the, the father-in-law sort of took you in as a son. So that's that was just an ordinary way of speaking in those days. And so there's the line of Mary that goes all the way back to where? King David. So both sides, Joseph's side and Mary's side, trace their lineage back to King David through different sons of David, but get all the way back to David. And that's the house that was chosen by God to be that royal house and there would be a, a son of David who would sit on the throne forever. Hmm, well. Was that true? I mean, let's think about the high priest for a minute. Was, was, have there always been priests? I mean, have, has there always been a witness for God? Or did the witness for God not begin until... Finally, Aaron is installed as high priest. Did you ever think about that? What, what happened to people before Moses, before Abraham, before Aaron? What, what, what was going on? Well, God has always had a testimony to himself, hasn't he? 
I mean, think about Adam. Even though Adam fell and, and was in rebellion against God, there was a testimony of God there. You know, hey, Adam, great-great-grandfather, how is it that you're not living over there in the garden? Why is that angel over there with the sword and doesn't let anybody in? Well, you got to answer the question. <laughs> and, and there was always a testimony there. Think about the guy Enoch. He was the seventh son, down, seventh generation down from Adam. We discover in the book of Jude that Enoch was a preacher of righteousness. And this is amazing. He says, I saw the Lord coming with thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Enoch, who was just seven generations removed from Adam, sees the glory of God returning at the second coming of Christ. Wow. Well, how about Noah? Oh, I'm sorry, I've got to back up. No, I want to, I want to do Noah next. Noah, Noah was uh, one who certainly knew God, and God revealed himself to Noah, and Noah prepared an ark and came through the flood, and it was through Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth that the testimony of God across the flood and was given to all of mankind as those uh, three boys and their wives began to repopulate the earth. So there's always been a testimony, right? Think about Job. Job lived about the time that Abraham lived. Now Abraham was born 2166 B.C. and Job was alive at that time. So maybe Job spans and, and probably had a long life. I mean, you know, he, he was like some of those old patriarchs. And he might have been born 2300 B.C., 2350 B.C., I, you know, somewhere in there. And his life would have overlapped the life of Abraham to some degree. Job, as you look in chapter 1, is functioning as the priest for his family. He's interceding for them. He's making sacrifice for them. And he's doing so to Almighty God. God has always had a witness in this world. Always. Mankind is absolutely without excuse. We know about God from creation. We know about God from our own consciences. And there has always been that testimony of the one living and true God available to us in every generation. So, we have introduced to us here in Hebrews chapter 7, and we've already seen him in chapter 5 and chapter 6, or chapter 4 and chapter 5, we've already seen this guy, Melchizedek. Let's refresh our memories in Hebrews chapter 7, um, in fact, we'll pick it up at the very end of chapter 6, verse 19. The writer says, We hope, or this hope we have, is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hmm. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, 
who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being first translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And he goes on with the description, which we'll come back to. But immediately our minds should say, who in the world is this Melchizedek guy? He just sort of pops up like we should know. Well, we probably should. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 14, where we discover this mysterious king-priest named Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 14. And we want to look at verse 18. If you want to understand what's going on in the world today, go back to Genesis. It's probably there. At least the root of it is there. Genesis chapter uh, 14, beginning at verse 18. Well, let me back up just a little bit. Abraham and Lot, his nephew, had separated. They had come into the land of Canaan together. They were both very wealthy men. They had large groups of people with them. Uh, we're going to discover here, or you'll see it in chapter 14, eight, Abraham had 318 men armed for war. He had his own little army. And, and those guys didn't come without families and their own herds and things like that, you know. So he has got at least 318 family units that he's taken care of. Abraham was a wealthy man. He was, he was like a little king all by himself. It was amazing, the wealth and the wisdom and the, the infrastructure that existed in that family. And so Abraham and Lot separate. Lot goes down out of the, the western part. He goes down into the Jordan Valley, down there north of what's now the Dead Sea, to the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, there were lots of battles taking place in those days. Kings would want to, and this seems to be true of political figures, they want to assemble their kingdoms, don't they? You know, we've got right now a war in Ukraine going on because some little king wants to add to his kingdom, and that's all it's about. You know, world domination has been man's desire ever since Cain. You know, Cain goes off, and what's he do? He starts his own little kingdom. We see it later on with Nimrod. He's going to go start his own little kingdom. Isn't history full of people trying to run little kingdoms? You know, whether they're, they're more recent in our history, but, I mean, didn't Japan want to own the world? Didn't Germany want to own the world? Didn't Khrushchev beat his shoe on the podium there at uh, the United Nations and say to the U.S. delegation, we will bury you? Hasn't world domination been the major motivation for the wars in our world? Absolutely. No different back then. So a bunch of kings got together and decided they were going to go make war against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and others. They're going to expand an empire. They're going to create this one world government. And they capture Lot and carry him off. And Abraham finds out about it. 
and he's going to go rescue his nephew. Now, Abraham must have been a pretty good military strategist, and he must have had a lot of bravery because he's going to take 318 guys and go to war against five kings. I'm not so sure I'd want to sign up in his army, but, you know, he pulled it off, didn't he? And he rescued Lot, and he brought him back. And as they were returning, they're passing by the city of Jerusalem. And this mysterious figure comes out of the city. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was, high, he was the priest of the Most High God and blessed him. In other words, Melchizedek is pronouncing a blessing on Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that's Abram, gave him, that's Melchizedek, a tithe of all. And then the door closes on Melchizedek. <laughs> it's like we have this little tiny, he pops on the scene, he blesses Abram, brings out bread and wine, he's the king of peace, he's the king of righteousness, and then he vanishes from, from the pages of Scripture, from the pages of history. Who is this guy? Well, his name means king of righteousness, and it also means king of peace. And his ministry is taking place long before Moses is ever around, about 500 years before, and long before David and the covenant that God made with David, about 1,500 years before. Melchizedek stands alone in the pages of Scripture. He is the priest of the Most High God. And that's an interesting designation because there were a lot of gods and goddesses that were recognized by people in the ancient world, but they were made up. I mean, they were, we, we discover later on in Scripture that those who worship idols, in fact, are worshiping demons. There is one God and one only, and, and he's often referred to as the most high God, not to imply that there are other gods of lesser rank, but to make sure that we're not getting confused with so-called gods, with man-made, man-generated ideas of gods. This is the most high. There is none greater, none higher than God himself. And that's the designation, the most high God. He comes out and he brings bread and wine. He refreshes Abram and his, his uh, army, a little army there, after the battle. Bread and wine were the things in the ancient world that were considered to be the absolute necessities, the staples of life. You had to have bread. And wine was important for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, it was medicinal. If you were injured or whatever, you, the, the alcohol in the, in the wine was, was a cleansing agent, a purifying agent. And even if you had water in those days, you had to dig wells to get water. 
uh, that's probably not the best water. It's probably not safe water. And so wine was often mixed with the water, again, as a purifying agent to make the water safe to drink. So Melchizedek brings out those necessities of life. And he pronounces a blessing. And look at the blessing. He says, Blessed be Abraham of God most high. And he describes this God. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be Abraham. Abraham was doing what God wanted him to do. Abraham was chosen by God to become a great blessing. And I think Melchizedek recognizes that. He perceives that. Here is a man, Abram, who with only 318 men has just defeated a whole handful of kings. And he's effected a delivery of his nephew Lot and all that Lot had. This is a man blessed by God. This is a man who is blessed by God, and this God is the one who possesses heaven and earth. And Melchizedek offers that blessing. And he rejoices with Abram, and he says, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram, yeah, you've got a little army of 318. You're a very wealthy man, and you're probably a really good military strategist and all that. But don't forget who actually won the victory. Who was the ultimate general on the battlefield? It was not you. It was God. God delivered them into your hand. And Abram gives a tithe. He gives a tenth of everything that he had rescued, everything that he brought back. He gives it to Melchizedek as an acknowledgement that, yes, Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, you are absolutely right. I stand here today, these people stand here today, we're all delivered from the hand of our enemies because of God. And here is a tangible expression of our acknowledgement of that fact and of our gratitude for what God has done. By the way, uh, this is not the point of the message, but I'll just toss that out here. God expects us to acknowledge him and to be grateful in tangible ways for the blessings that we have received from his hand. He expects that. Melchizedek, in this role as a king-priest, becomes a foreshadowing a little type, a little picture of the Messiah that would eventually come as God's provision for reconciliation between mankind, which has fallen, and himself. Melchizedek offers bread and wine. Jesus takes bread and wine at the Passover meal, and invests them with brand new meaning of his own body and blood, through which we have access to the Heavenly Father. The parallels here, and I wish we had time to go into all of them. We're going to look at a few, but we're not going to cover it all. 
But I do want us to focus on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and how, how Melchizedek is a little foreshadowing, albeit imperfect, because Melchizedek was a man and I think a real person. So, some have suggested that Jesus uh, just appeared there and this was a theophany, an appearance of God. I, I disagree with that, and we'll see why when we get to Psalm 110. I think Melchizedek was kind of like Noah, kind of like Enoch, kind of like Job. He was a man who before God established the, the Israelite nation, before God established the law through Moses, before God established the high priesthood through Aaron, before all that, God worked with individuals. And Melchizedek was one of those whom God in his sovereign province, providence raised up to be a priest king to represent God to the world and to be a type or a foreshadowing of the Messiah who would be the fulfillment of all of those things, not just prior to the establishment of Israel, but even the fulfillment of the specific laws and promises and pictures and patterns of sacrifice that God would ultimately give to his own people, the Jews. You see, God, from day one of Adam's rebellion, God has been preparing this world for the coming Messiah. It starts in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God says to Satan that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. And from that point forward, there's like little Polaroid pictures every so often in the pages of Scripture where God is saying, okay, it's going to be like this. It's going to be like this. It's going to be like this. And you begin to add those things up and you see the pictures throughout the Old Testament so that when finally Jesus the Messiah is introduced to us in the pages of the Gospels, we should immediately say, He's the one! That's the Messiah. He fulfills everything that God has been preparing to show us who the Messiah is. And it should all click. The problem is, we're not nearly as familiar with the pages of the Old Testament as we are with the New. And so it's kind of like trying to build the roof on the house without the foundation and the supporting walls. You're trying to hang the roof in space. <laughs> and, and, and you only get just that little glimpse of the workings of God. Whereas if we start out in Genesis and we have our eyes open and we begin to see these pictures that God gives us, then when we get to the New Testament, we've got the foundation, we've got the supporting walls, we've got the roof, we've got the whole picture of what God is doing in our world. Well, let's keep on going here. 
Jesus functioned as a prophet, didn't he? Let's think about the uniqueness of Christ. Now, we're going to focus on his work as high priest, but think about prophet for a minute. Does not Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 say that God, who at Sunday times and in diverse places spoke in times past through the prophets, has now spoken, what? In his Son. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. What was the, the prophet supposed to do? The prophet was supposed to proclaim the word of God, to expose the sin of God's people, to call them to repentance, and to set before them the consequences of obedience and disobedience. What did Jesus do when he came? Scripture says that when he, when he was baptized and was coming back out of the wilderness, the first words out of his mouth were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What characterized his whole ministry? He was the greatest prophet that ever walked this earth. He constantly proclaimed the word of God, didn't he? He taught us about God. He constantly exposed the sin of God's people, didn't he? You remember the difference between how Jesus talked to the woman who was caught in adultery and how Jesus talked to the scribes and the Pharisees? That woman that was caught in adultery, I mean in the very act, and she was drug out in front of the whole town. And down there she was on the ground, probably on her knees crying. She knew what was coming. She was about to be stoned. And they said, what do you think, Jesus? What's the law say? Doesn't it say stone such a woman? How did Jesus respond to her? He was very gracious, wasn't he? When that whole thing played out, and, and all of her accusers were, were gone, Jesus said, well, okay, then the one without sin casts the first stone. And, the, and everybody leaves, and there's just the, the crowd of onlookers there, and, and just Jesus and the woman. He says to her words of grace, words of mercy. He says, where are your accusers? Didn't any of them condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Oh, it's not cheap grace. It's not a license to sin. Forgiveness is never a license to just go and do whatever it is you want to do. But God forgave her, and she was guilty. And everybody knew she was guilty. It was public guilt. But God forgave her and then said, go and sin no more. Your life's been changed. Live like it. I mean, Jesus was the ultimate, the consummate high, uh, uh, prophet. But when it came to the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, there was no mercy. There was no grace. He called them vipers. He called them sons of the devil. I mean, he, he didn't pull any punches. Why? Because they were hypocrites. 
There wasn't a hypocritical bone in that woman's body. She was a lost sinner, and she knew it, and everybody knew it, and she confessed to it, and she received God's grace. But those others who thought, man, when it comes to holy, I'm holy. <laughs> Jesus nailed them to the wall, and he had no mercy on them at all. How about as his role as king? He fulfilled the role of prophet. What about king? Well, he was from the tribe of Judah. Both Matthew and Luke in their genealogies make that very, very clear. He was from the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of David. He fulfills that Davidic covenant. And his crucifixion, Pilate, an ungodly king, or, well, not king, but governor, representative of the Roman Empire, puts a sign up there, and he puts it in Latin and Hebrew and Greek. Everybody in the world read one of those three languages. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He was declared to be King of the Jews at his crucifixion. And everybody got it. In fact, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that religious crowd, they were offended by it. And they say, go to Pilate, and they say, well, don't put that up there. T say something like, he said he was King of the Jews. Finally, Pilate got a backbone, and he said, what I've written, I've written. In other words, get out of here, guys. What I've written is going to not be changed. It stands. Because though Pilate didn't know it, it was the absolute truth. There on the cross was the king of the Jews, the king of kings and lord of lords. And in fact, that's the name that he bears even this day. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 you can see that also in Revelation 17, verse 14, Revelation 19, verse 6, 16. He is declared to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We may not see him reigning on the throne of David from Jerusalem just yet, but relax, you will. The whole world will see that because he will literally fulfill that promise given to David Back there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Jesus Christ, his descendant, will rule and reign on the throne in Israel forever. Forever. So let's think about something here in Psalm 110. Jesus is unique because in him, two offices, well, all three offices, prophet, priest, and king, are combined they're all combined now in the ancient world in Israel you could be a prophet and a priest you could be a prophet and a king but what you could not be was a priest and a king God separated those offices completely because in the ancient Near East and I'm probably getting ahead of myself here in the ancient Near East, the, the uh, priest and the king, when that office was combined, always resulted in the king being deified, turned into a god by the people. Or if not turned into a god, he was considered to be the son of one of the gods, and upon his death then he would be elevated and himself would then become a god. That was the viewpoint of the ancient Near East. God says, you know what? 
We're not going to have that idolatry in my kingdom. We're going to separate the office of prophet and the office of king or of priest and king. We're going to make a bright line of demarcation. Now there was one king, wasn't there, in Israel's history that decided he was going to do both. Do you remember him? His name was Uzziah. And he decided that he was going to go into the Holy of Holies and he was going to offer incense there. And a bunch of priests opposed him and he grabbed the censer and he was headed in. And guess what happened? God struck him with leprosy. What a horrible disease. You say, wow, that's pretty serious stuff. Yeah, yeah. God takes his rules seriously. Don't think that we can violate those things and get away with it. Now, God mercifully allowed Uzziah to live, but he was a leper until the day of his death, and he had to live outside of Jerusalem. He was, he was king in absentia, and in fact, it was his son who kind of reigned in his place, and when Uzziah died, then his son became king in his own right. What a cost, you know, what a cost. But Jesus is different. Look at Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, now David is the author of this psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, do you notice that that first word Lord is all capitalized? That's the divine name. That's the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Moses says, okay, I'm going back to Israel and I'm going to get them all out. And they're going to say, what's the name of this God that sent you? What name shall I give them? And God says, I am who I am. Yahweh. That's the name. I am who I am. I am the eternal one. I am the self-existent one. I'm the one that exists, and apart from me, nothing exists. The most high God. You tell them I sent you to them. Well, that's the word that's used here. The Most High God, the I Am, the self-existent one, said to my Lord. Now that's printed a little differently in your Bible, isn't it? That's the word Adonai, which means the master, the owner, the strong one, the, 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 the superior one. So the I Am said to my master. David is writing. Now who is the master who is the owner of a king? Well, nobody, right? I mean, isn't the king the highest position in the land? Isn't the king sort of the, the top dog? How is it that David is recognizing that he himself, even though he's king, has an owner, a master, and that this owner, this master, has interaction with the I am. How is that? Well, that can only be the case if that Adonai is Yahweh as well. That's the only way it can be. And then it goes on and talks about this son who will rule forever in, in 2 Samuel 7. How is this possible? How can a son of David rule forever? 
wasn't the problem with the high priest the fact that the guy kept dying and you had to get a new one in? And think about all the kings of Israel. Wasn't the problem that they kept dying and you kept having to get a new king in? Yeah. Well, how, how can there be an eternal high priest? How can there be an eternal king? And how can that king who is eternal be the descendant of a human being? Do you see the dilemma? Do you see the problem? Look with me at Matthew. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew chapter 24. By the way, Psalm 110 is the most quoted scripture in the New Testament. The single most quoted scripture in the New Testament. And yet we are so unfamiliar with it. So in Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 41 here. Um, I'm sorry, but I have mistyped something. And that is a great verse, but we are not worried about two women at the well right now today or at the mill let me just look if I put something else in my note here hmm. well we're going to uh, maybe it was 25 well isn't it always the way when you're stuck on something you can't see it even though it's probably right in front of you let me just summarize the story here Jesus is in dialogue with the religious leaders and, and they're questioning him about all kinds of things. And he says, guys, I'm going to ask you a question. David's, or the Messiah, the Messiah, whose son is he? And they say, well, he's the son of David. He's a descendant of David. That's the Messiah. Everybody knew that. That was common knowledge. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110. He says, all right, how is it then that David in the spirit says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for your feet. If he is the son of David, how does David also call him Lord? If he's the son of David, how is he also superior to David? And the answer to that is that he is God in the flesh. Jesus at the incarnation becomes the answer to that question, the answer or the response to that statement in Psalm 110, that David's son is greater than David, that David's descendant is able to function eternally both as priest and as king because he's appointed to that priesthood. The thing about Melchizedek, we didn't spend a lot of time there, but we don't have any reference to who his parents were. We don't know if his dad was a king or if his dad was a shoemaker. We have no, no clue because it's just not mentioned. Melchizedek bursts on the scene and then he's gone. And his priesthood, we don't have any mention of how he became a priest. Was his dad a priest 
or was his dad a candle maker? We don't know. He just bursts on the scene, and he holds both offices, and he blesses Abraham, and then he's gone. And he has no end. There, there's nothing recorded that, that he ends. Jesus is, is both king and priest. He's the king of righteousness, or excuse me, he, yeah, the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He is the perfect high priest. He is without sin. He offers himself as the sinless, spotless lamb of God. He fulfills both offices simultaneously, and he does so absolutely because he is appointed. He's designated, just like Melchizedek was designated. He didn't come from a priestly line. Jesus didn't come from a priestly line in his humanity. In his humanity, Mary traced her descendant uh, ascent, uh, ancestors back to David. Joseph, the foster father, everybody thought Joseph was Jesus' father, but Matthew's very clear that, you know, Joseph kept her a virgin until after Jesus was born. So Joseph also traced his, that's the legal uh, line back to David. Jesus, 100% human, 100% God, a descendant of David, appointed as the high priest, just like Melchizedek was appointed. He didn't inherit that priesthood from anybody. He was appointed that. Just like that, Jesus fulfills both offices. You say, well, now, wait a minute. I thought God made a separation of those offices in the Old Testament. He did, because he was dealing with mere human beings. He was dealing with sinful people. In Jesus, they can be united without problem because Jesus is a sinless human being and he is God in the flesh. And both offices can be united and Jesus can be declared to be the Son of God. Jesus can be declared to be God in the flesh because he is. And all the people, all the citizens of the kingdom can legitimately worship Jesus as their king priest because he is. And that's the point that the writer of Hebrews wants to make to all of these Jewish people who are curious about Jesus, who are putting their trust in him or they're thinking about it. He, the writer wants them to know that Jesus is God's Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, the one who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So why in the world is that important to us today? What, what difference does it make? Well, the difference is astounding. Because if you ever want to be in heaven, if you ever want to be delivered from an eternity separated from God, it is through Jesus Christ that you must find that deliverance. That's it. Jesus is the high priest who did not offer 
something else as the sacrifice, a bull or a goat or a lamb, but he was in fact himself the sacrifice. He laid down his life in your place, in my place, taking the penalty of my sin and of your sin on himself so that he might set us free who come to him in simple faith. Kind of like that woman that was caught in adultery. She knew she was guilty. She offered no excuse. She offered no defense. She offered nothing. She simply received the mercy and grace and forgiveness that Jesus offered to her. But the scribes and Pharisees who wanted to bring their own righteousness and their own goodness and their own religiosity and give that to God as though they were really giving God something great, they were the ones that got left out. Jesus said, the, the people who are well don't need a physician, but the people that are sick. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. But the sinners, that's you and me. And so, beloved, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, He's the reason, or you're the reason that He came. He's calling to you. He, he's done everything that's necessary. He has fulfilled God's righteousness he has paid the penalty for our sin. Everything is prepared. All you need to do is acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace. Cry out to him. Be like that guy that was outside the temple, saw everything going on in there, and, and knew that he was a sinner and unworthy, and he stands afar off, and he beats on his chest, and he says, Oh, God, have mercy on me a sinner. Jesus, when he told that story, said that that man went down to his home justified. In other words, he was saved. But in the story, there was a priest in there, a, a Pharisee, who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other sinners. Boy, I tithe and I do all that. That guy had no hope. None. If you're here today and you need Christ, you come like that woman. You come like that, that sinner outside who realized that he had no reason to hope that he was owed anything by God. He just simply said, God, have mercy on me, and he will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we barely scratched the surface on this, and our time is gone. Lord, it is amazing to us what you have done in accomplishing our salvation. In every point where Adam failed and rebelled, you did not fail, and, and you submitted to the will of the Father. And you have offered yourself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have humbled yourself, and you have shared in our humanity and, and you have lived among us and you have taught us of the Father and you have called us to repentance and 
And yet you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You're the creator of this universe. Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning, that if there's one who doesn't know Christ, doesn't know you as their Savior, don't let them leave this place. Bring such strong conviction to their hearts and minds that, Lord, they will turn to you and cry out and say, Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because you will. You will in that very moment. You will forgive them of their sin. You will make them their child, your child. And, and they will begin a relationship with you that will culminate in eternity with you. Heavenly Father, for those of us who are believers, help us to become better students of your word. Help us to be able to see in the Word of God the incredible richness that's there. The preparation that you have made for our salvation and then the obtaining of that salvation through Christ and, and all the promises that even are yet to be fulfilled and the encouragement that you give us so that we can live each day in the midst of a fallen world with hope, with confidence, with joy even when things are hard. Oh, Father, thank you so much for all that you're doing in our lives. Continue that good work. And I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.